0: Good morning everyone, my name is Chris Anderson and I'm the teacher for class A40. Today we start a new series in the book of Isaiah with a general introduction and then a study on chapter one. But let's begin our time together with a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of studying your scriptures. We pray that today you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond to what we read today in the book of Isaiah. We ask your blessing on our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before diving into the first chapter of Isaiah, I'll provide some background information about this very important book, since it will cover uh, the next several weeks of our study. Uh, We see that Isaiah's book is filled with amazing prophecies, some dealing with the upcoming exile of the people in the southern kingdom of Judah, and others dealing with the future coming of the promised Messiah, the importance of Isaiah can be seen by the fact that the New Testament writers quote Isaiah more than any other prophetic book. First, let's talk a little bit about Isaiah the man. Isaiah was born of the tribe of Judah early in the 8th century B.C. in the southern kingdom of Judah. We are told that Isaiah was highborn and well-educated. Rabbinic tradition says that Isaiah was the nephew of King Amaziah and therefore the cousin of King Uzziah. He was married and had at least two children. His his name means, The Lord Saves. Isaiah became a statesman in the royal court of Judah in Jerusalem. His ministry as a prophet officially began in 739 or 740 BC during the reign of King Uzziah, also known as Azariah. And it probably continued into the 680s BC during the reign of King Manasseh. Isaiah's ministry, ministry described in his book spanned the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, a period of over 40 years. According to rabbinic tradition, Hezekiah's son and successor, King Manasseh, executed Isaiah. Now, the prophets Micah in Judah and Amos and Hosea up in the northern kingdom of Israel were contemporaries of Isaiah so their books would be contemporary and dealing with the same uh, context as uh, as Isaiah's book Isaiah's writings exhibited the highest literary style of all the Old Testament prophets which is further indication of his education and status some commentators believe Isaiah wrote down and organized God's messages according to major themes rather than in a strictly chronological format A good example here is you would be forgiven if you thought, like many of us do, that the book of Isaiah begins with the words, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. This verse begins the famous passage about Isaiah's commission to God's service, but it appears at the beginning of chapter 6. So today with chapter 1 of the book, we see this theme-based structure as Isaiah describes the rebellion and corruption of the people and the end of God's patience as he sets the stage for the upcoming time of judgment. Chapters 1 through 5 are a preamble that provides the context for the inauguration of Isaiah's prophetic ministry in chapter 6. Now let's recall a few things about the time in which Isaiah lived. It was a time of economic oppression of the poor, Assyria was the imperial power in these days and covered the area in what is now known, or now would be northern Iraq and southeastern Turkey. Its capital was Nineveh. Remember Jonah? Well, he evangelized Nineveh probably around the time that Isaiah was born. It was a time of military dangers, especially from the Assyrian Empire, which conquered Palestine during the 8th century B.C., and it was about 20 years after Isaiah began his ministry that Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. He dispersed the people throughout his empire, and the kingdom of Israel ceased to exist and was removed from history. About a hundred years later, the Assyrians would be displaced by the Neo-Babylonian empire. But it was a time of peace at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, but the clouds of war were soon going to appear on the horizon and the time of peace came to an end with several international crises. Syria, also known as Aram, and the northern kingdom, also known as Ephraim, sought Judah's alliance to deal with the Assyrian threat. King Ahaz of Judah refused to join this alliance. Later, when the Edomites and Philistines invaded, Ahaz sought a treaty with Assyria rather than trust the Lord for protection. The area of Western Palestine fell under Assyria's control during this time. Damascus fell in 732, and the northern kingdom in 722 BC. On the death of Assyria's King Sargon, Egypt encouraged Judah to join them in a rebellion against the new Assyrian ruler, Sennacherib. Again, they did not listen to Isaiah and did not seek God's protection. Instead, King Hezekiah made an alliance with Egypt, Sennacherib invaded and defeated Egypt on Judah's soil, and Hezekiah was forced to pay tribute, and Judah remained a vassal state. Okay, well, we've looked at Isaiah the man and the world situation, so let's make some observations about the book of Isaiah. A key fact about the book of Isaiah is that it is heavily quoted in the New Testament. Only Psalms is quoted more than Isaiah. It shows the highest of literary styles of all the prophets. We see that Isaiah's favorite name for God is the Holy One of Israel. He uses this frequently throughout the book. The oldest manuscript discovered to date is called the St. Mark's Isaiah Scroll from Qumran, and it's part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have been dated to about 100 B.C. Now, theologians divide the book in, of Isaiah in a lot of different ways. And for example, this is one two-part division where part one, chapters one through 35, are about God's judgment on Israel and Judah through the armies of Assyria and Babylon. And part two, chapters 40 to 66, is, shows that God's judgment has been satisfied and the remnant now returns from Babylon. Another way to divide Isaiah Uh, by some of the commentators, is in three separate books. Number one, the Book of the King, chapters 2 through 37. Then the Book of the Servant, chapters 38 to 55. And thirdly, the Book of the Anointed Conqueror, chapters 56 to 66. And these titles of these books kind of give us some hints about what some of the major themes are going to be in Isaiah. So we'll look at themes now for just a moment. There are uh, at least six main theological principles or themes set out in Isaiah. The first one would be, God is the Lord of History. Number two, God is supreme over idols. Number three, the promise of a remnant. Four, reconciliation by God of sinners through substitutionary atonement. Five, Zion will be restored. And six, the Davidic Messiah. In addition to these main themes, we also will come across several other themes, including uh, themes like God as the Holy One of Israel, themes of sin and judgment, the suffering servant, and also faith. And it's interesting to see that some of the commentators because of this emphasis on faith have called Isaiah the Paul of the Old Testament. And we can't leave this summary or overview without just at least one little piece of trivia So a lot of you uh, are fans of Handel's Messiah, and by my count, the Messiah uh, consists of 57 parts of singing uh, of biblical lyrics, and all of the uh, lyrics in Messiah come from the Bible. Sixteen of these were selected from the book of Isaiah. So with this as our introduction, please open your Bibles to the first chapter of Isaiah, and let's jump in. Chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah are the prologue or backdrop that illuminate the context for Isaiah's calling and the beginning of his prophetic ministry. These five chapters of Isaiah are filled with words of God's judgment, pronouncements of woe, the coming of wars, the destruction of the nation, but there are also words of hope. Now, I sometimes think of this verse as coming from uh, the book of Revelations or something. Perhaps you also remember it. It talks about the promised future, and it says, They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. This actually comes from Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. So please follow along. I'll begin at verse 1, and we'll go through verse 9. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. I'm going to stop here for just a moment to look at two words, vision and saw. Now, vision and saw in the Hebrew are not used in the generic way we might expect. These words are used with these meanings. Vision is a message from God. It does not mean that Isaiah was in some sort of a spiritual trance while seeing into the future. And also, the word saw, Isaiah saw the vision. This means that Isaiah had the God-given ability to perceive the truth of the vision. And this reminded me of Pastor Keith's series in Daniel, where Daniel was given the God-given ability to interpret dreams. Another thing to notice in in verse 1 here, it says that Isaiah saw this vision during the reigns of four kings. This is a period of over 40 years, and if we didn't know better, we might wonder how Isaiah saw a dreaming vision that lasted for 40 years. But now that we know that vision here means the message from God, and since the book contains other messages and prophetic passages, chapter 1 is seen as an overview for the entire book. We could paraphrase verse 1 as saying, These are the messages of God that Isaiah the son of Amos received and understood during the reigns of the four kings. So let's pick back up with verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation! People weighed down with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in this rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot... Even to the head there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Isaiah begins his book with this loud wake-up call. Listen, O, o heavens, he says, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. With God's heavens and earth as witnesses, Isaiah lays out God's charges against the people in the nation of Judah. The word listen here is the Hebrew word Shema, which for centuries have been used by the Jews as the title of the primary commandment of the Old Testament and their confession of faith. This is the same commandment that Jesus spoke in Mark chapter 12 when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus replied with his Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. It is very important to remember that the words listen or hear, this Hebrew word Shema means not only listen, but also obey. And as we will see in this beginning chapter of Isaiah, failure to heed the Shema is the great sin of Israel. The seriousness of this matter is quickly seen in the fact that God's very own sons are in active rebellion against their loving father who had redeemed them out of Egyptian bondage and entered into the covenant at Mount Sinai. The problem is further emphasized in verse 3 with the fact that my people, my chosen ones, don't even have the common sense of barnyard animals. Now, we don't want to miss this truth. It sounds a little funny, but it is true. Not knowing the scriptures and not obeying the word of God leads to ignorance and loss of wisdom, and the people become dumber than an ox. These verses contain an indictment of the people's complete violation of their covenant with God. Just look at this list of crimes. Revolt against God. Ignorance of the word of God. So many sins that the nation is described as a sinful nation, And the people are weighed down and called children of sinners. Corruption, abandonment of God, despising God, turning away from God. This phrase, turning away from God, has the idea of turning their backs on Him and turning themselves back into people who are estranged from God. This is the concept used in the Old Testament for aliens and foreigners. Well, this is already a heartbreaking passage, and it only gets worse. The people's sins against their God have resulted in terrible consequences. And now Isaiah describes these bad consequences by attaching each one to something that had been a gift from God. For example, the first one, a holy nation. It's now a sinful nation. The nation that God meant to be holy is now a sinful nation and is sick from the top of its head to the bottoms of his feet. Another, a chosen and redeemed people. They're now a people weighed down with sin. Deuteronomy 4.6 tells us, God planned for Israel to be a wise and understanding people. Instead, they're now a people of ignorance and without understanding. Sons of God are now called corrupt sons. The word here is offspring, where offspring of evil is used. The word offspring is the word brood or seed, and it's it's used in this context as indicating the offspring or the seed of Abraham. The offspring of the covenant has now turned into offspring of evildoers. Also, the promised land is now a land destroyed by invaders. And also, the nation's glory is gone. The nation that was to be a light on the hill is now nothing more than a forlorn shack out in the middle of a field. The nation that was to be holy to the Lord and a beacon to the Gentiles can almost be compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, verses 7 through 9 about the desolation in burned cities overthrown by strangers is viewed by many commentators as a prophecy of the invasion, either by the Philistines and Edomites in 734 B.C., or by the Assyrians in 701 BC. But these verses also have a, are a very important metaphor describing the spiritual condition of the people of Judah. They're godless, corrupt, ignorant, sick through and through, like a landscape of utter desolation. Well, I wonder how often we consider the danger of the consequences of our sins. Are there even any some minor or tiny, as we might think of them, sins that we have not been serious about leaving behind or confessing to the Lord? We really need to ask the Lord to reveal these things to us, and I I remember David's prayer here, Search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. But our loving God never leaves his people totally crushed and without hope. As we move ahead in verse 10, let's not overlook what God did in verse 9. Here is the promise of mercy, of redemption and preservation, through the theme of the remnant, by the words, the Lord of hosts has left us a few survivors. So let's continue now with verse 10. Hear the, lo- Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Well, for a second time now, Isaiah says here, that word shama, what the Lord is saying. In these verses, Isaiah describes the mind of the Lord that almost sounds like he does not want the people to continue with their ceremonial sacrifices and feast days. But verses 1 through 9 have given us the context for the Lord's anger. The chosen people are in rebellion. They're living in sin. They have abandoned the Lord, who is their God. And as a result of all this, God says, I've had enough. I take no pleasure. You are only trampling my house. Your worship and offerings are worthless and an abomination to me. I hate your holy festivals. I cannot endure this. It's only a burden to me. You are wearing me out. So after many long years of apostasy, idol worship, corruption and oppression, it is no wonder that God is exasperated with his people. However, In their rebellion, the Jewish people continued to honor the outward forms of the sacrifices, offerings, and holy assemblies set out in the law. But their empty and insincere worship had become nothing more than formalism and legalism. The people were just going through the motions. This was mindless worship, heartless worship, with no intention of obedience. The people no longer responded to the reality of God. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper in verse 12. You'll see it says there, When you come to appear before me. In Exodus 23, we see that the purpose of the various holy festivals was for the people to come together and appear before the Lord. This is clear in chapters 23 and 34 of Exodus. And then in Deuteronomy chapters 16 and 31, we see this idea that, quote, three times in a year, all your mail shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. The phrase appear before the Lord can also contain the idea of to see my face. This points to a special aspect of worship where we lift our hearts to draw close to and, in a sense, see God. And as written in Numbers then, chapter 6, the Lord makes his face to shine on us. The people of Isaiah's day had lost this personal relationship with the Lord, and in their corruptness, the continuing acts of legalistic worship came to mean to God nothing more than the constant noise of many feet trampling my courts. We are compelled to ask, what was the missing ingredient from the meticulous performance of all the lost sacrifices, offerings, and feasts that kept their worship from being pleasing to God? Verse 13 tells us that their offerings were meaningless, gifts of nothing. In addition to these rebellious behaviors that we saw in the first nine verses, we see here the root problem is that the people no longer believed or lived the Shema, the great commandment. Later in chapter 29, God will make it very clear how godly worship becomes meaningless worship As he says in verse 13 of chapter 29, this people draw near me with their words, they honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. And as I thought about this verse, Revelations 2 verse 4 keeps coming to my mind. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. So here is the missing ingredient. The people's hearts had left, had abandoned their God. Even worse, verse 4 says that they they despised the Holy One of Israel. They no longer loved their Lord with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. And without this multifaceted love of the Lord, without our heartfelt involvement in the worship of Him, how can there be any godly motivation to obey Him? So, Judah's situation should cause each of us to ask how sincere is our worship. Does a distant heart or a cold heart ever describe you or me as we come to Sunday worship? If so, let's return to the deep reading, the meditations on the scriptures and prayer. Psalm 1 promises refreshment and growth by streams of living water. Finally, Verse 15 describes one of the terrible, terrible consequences of not returning God's love with our own and of engaging in hypocritical and worthless worship. We see that God turns his face away and no longer hears our prayers. This is a terrible thing to consider. But again, God God does not leave us here without hope. So let's continue in verse 16. Your hands are covered with blood, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. Reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. The remedy for Israel's degenerated spiritual condition begins with these three commands to reform the people's spiritual lives Stop doing evil. Learn to do good and to seek justice. Verse 16's first command is to Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. This follows the metaphor of washing and making clean by removing the dirt of evil deeds. Second, once cleaned, the people can begin to learn or relearn the doing of good things. This is a concept similar to Paul's teaching in Romans twelve two, where he said, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Thirdly, in seeking justice, the people would be setting new priorities oriented around God's will. Again, as Paul said, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Isaiah elaborates on seeking justice throughout Jewish society, and sets out three more commands. He says, reprove the oppressor, defend the orphan, and plead the widow's case. Now, these are classic commands found throughout the Old Testament. And if you follow our news today, you know we still need them now. And notice how these three commands start at the top of society with the rich and powerful, and reach down to the neediest, the destitute widow. We should understand these three commands as a formulaic expression that doing justice applies to the highest and to the lowest in society and to everyone in between. So there is a remedy for the terrible condition of the people of Judah through returning their hearts to love of the Lord and to obedience of the commandments as memorialized in the Shema. We'll close today's lesson beginning at verse 18 with Isaiah's words about the mercy of God who is always standing ready to forgive and restore. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, after the command to wash away the evil stain of sin, in verse 16, God now invites the people to enjoy the results of the cleansing, to turn the redness of blood guiltiness into the snow whiteness of forgiveness and peace with God. Implied in this is the reversal of God's turning his face away from the people to a complete restoration of the people's good and proper relationship with their Lord. This promise of forgiveness and restoration is couched in the terms of the blessing and curse that is seen throughout the Old Testament. If you obey, you will be blessed. But if you rebel, you will experience the curse. I hope this reminds us to be thankful every day for God's mercy to us. I hope so, because also as the scriptures say, the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Deuteronomy 4.31 And the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23. So when we arrive at chapter 6 in next week's lesson with the famous calling of Isaiah to his prophetic ministry, We will now have an understanding how much the rebellious and sinful nation of Judah is in need of Isaiah's ministry. Chapters 1-5 through explicitly lay out the causes and effects relating to the people's hearts that resulted in the terrible condition in which they now find themselves. We are told about the national, religious, and societal collapse resulting from a rebellion and sin. The nation's condition will again be highlighted in the climactic chapter 5 with the Song of the Vineyard, where God is seen as developing the best vineyard imaginable with the best soil and the best vines, but the vineyard only produces the worst kind of grapes. So stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss what happens in chapter 6 next week. So thank you for your attention and your patience with me, Uh, Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Isaiah, this great book that we get to immerse ourselves in for several weeks. We pray that we will learn. We pray that we will use this book as a wake-up call for our hearts to make sure our condition of our minds and hearts are right with you, that we are pleasing to you. And we pray that these studies in Isaiah will inspire us to worship sincerely from our hearts out of love for you, We just ask your blessing on this week ahead. We pray we will look forward with expectancy to chapter 6. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.